good morning, Living Hope Church. We're so glad you could be with us today. I'm going to encourage you to grab your Bibles and turn with me, please, to the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. We're going to start reading here in a minute at verse 17. But before we do, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, again, we are grateful for this time that we have as the body of Christ to worship together, to open your word, to be with uh, family this morning. I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would be present and you would be powerful. You would be at work inside of our homes this morning, revealing to us your wisdom and your life and what you have for us. May you be at work in your word this morning, doing what only you can do in the lives of your church today. In your wonderful name we pray. Amen. So Ephesians chapter 4 verse 17, but I want to begin with this thought. There is a way that leads to life, and there is a way that leads to death. Scripture is actually full of this notion, this piece of wisdom. In fact, there's an entire group of books and literature in the Old Testament that's devoted to it. We just call it wisdom literature. And wisdom literature is encouraging us over and over again, listen to the voice of wisdom Don't listen to the voice of foolishness or folly. If we listen to the voice of wisdom, there we're going to find God and we're going to find life. If we listen to the voice of folly, that is a path that leads to death and destruction and corruption inside of our lives. And it's not just literature in the Old Testament, but Scripture goes to great lengths to reveal to us the power and the the beauty and the goodness of life that is offered to us in Jesus Christ. It is light instead of darkness. It is God's kind of life instead of the death that corruption and sin brings into our lives. In our passage of scripture this morning, Paul implores, he uses this really strong language, he implores the Ephesians to live in this new kind of life that has been offered to them in Jesus Christ. They once lived as everyone else does. If you remember in the New Testament, just about everybody that Paul is writing to is what we would call a first-generation Christian. They used to live without Christ. Now they've become Christians and they're leading a brand new life. So Paul implores them, this new life that you're learning in Christ, I need you to be living in this new way. And these two ways of life, before and after Christ, light and darkness, they're not presented as just two options and you can choose one or the other and they're different, but in the end, they're equal ways of life. It's not that at all. They're actually presented as the difference between life and death. In the passage of scripture that we're going to deal with this morning, we have those two images presented to us. So we have these two thoughts. They're going to help us understand what Paul's talking about in our passage today. The first thought is this. Without Christ, life now is darkness. Without Christ, life now is darkness. Now we often talk about the eternal consequences of living without Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, that when this physical body dies, our soul lives forever, and we, we live this life of eternity without Jesus Christ. Now that is a real issue, and those are true eternal consequences. But the focus of our passage of Scripture this morning is not about 
the eternal consequences of life without Christ. They're about the consequences of life now without Jesus Christ. And Paul's going to use this great language. He calls life now without Christ. He, he calls it things like it is a life of futility, darkness, greed, callousness, hardness of heart. Without Christ, life now is darkness. So that's the first part of this passage. The second part of this passage is the flip side of that. With Christ, our lives now can be God's kind of life and light. But he's going to tell us that our minds need to change. Our desires need to change. Heart and mind language that Paul uses. They need to be formed into the things of Jesus Christ so that we can live the life that Christ now offers us. We are now, after all, as Paul is going to point out in this passage, we are, after all, made in the likeness and the image of Jesus Christ, and we were built to benefit from life with Jesus. So let's begin reading our passage, Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 17, and it goes like this. Now this I say, and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. That's a pretty stark description of life without Jesus Christ. And he begins like this. Now this I say and I testify. The NIV sort of pulls out the sense of that language really well when it translates it like this. So this I tell you and insist on it in the Lord that you no longer live as the Gentiles do. He means those who don't know Christ. Don't live like them anymore. There's a different way of life available to you. So this is really important to Paul. He really does want believers, not just saved and on their way to heaven when they die, but living a brand new kind of life in Jesus Christ. Now, this is interesting to me. We may put our trust in Jesus. We put our trust in him as Savior and Lord, and we're saved is the kind of language that we use and that Scripture sometimes uses. We may put our trust in Jesus Christ, but that does not mean that immediately everything about our hearts and minds and habits, passions, desires changes. It doesn't mean that everything automatically becomes brand new in the way that we think and do things. It's not a magic moment in the sense that our lives change. It turns out that there's still work to do. It turns out that we actually still have these things within us that are drawn to our former way of life that now Christ wants to begin to change. So you see, even after this moment of salvation, we're asked to put effort and attention and work into this brand new life. And most importantly, to allow the Holy Spirit to have access to our lives, to change the things within us that we can't change, but that God promises to change, that God wants to change inside of us. As I was thinking through this passage of Scripture, I was reminded of this wonderful little book by C.S. Lewis called The Screwtape Letters. If you've never read the book, it's a fascinating work. 
he writes it from the point of view of a senior tempter demon. His name is Screwtape, and he's writing to his nephew, who's brand new to the work of tempting humans away from God and trying to get them into eternity in hell. And so every piece of advice in the book, if you read it, realize every piece of advice is the opposite of what it should be. But it's still full of all of this incredible insight. Well, very early on in the book, the human, um, the human object... The human character in the book becomes a Christian. And so the young demon is worried about that, but the senior, dem- uh, the senior tempter demon writes, and he says, don't worry about that. There, there are still ways of dealing with someone who's just become a follower of Christ. And here's one of the things that Screwtape says. All the habits of the patient, both mental and bodily, are still in our favor. That's really provocative. I know they've become a Christian, but realize this. There's still habits of both mind and body that are still in our favor, still might actually pull this person back to us. That's a very provocative thought. So what are these habits? How do we recognize them? What kinds of things need to change inside of us so that we can be pulled closer and closer to life with Christ instead of life without Christ? Listen again to the description of life without Christ that Paul gives us in this passage of Scripture. They are darkened in their understanding. There's futility in their minds, he says, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of hearts. They're callous, right? They're callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greed, to practice every kind of impurity. Some incredible language. So this is description of life without Christ. They live in the futility of their minds, he says. And notice throughout this passage, as we go through the whole thing, the language of heart and mind. How Paul talks about how important the habits of our heart, our character, how important those habits are. How important the habits of our mind, the way that we think, the way that we reason, the way that we process reality, these habits are critical to one way of life or the other. The way of life without Christ, he says, is is lived in the futility of our minds. It's a great word, futility. It actually means being devoid of the truth. Being devoid of the truth. It can even mean perverse in the perverseness or the falsity of their minds, the way that they think. Now, if we pause and think about this for a moment or two, that those without Christ live in the futility of their minds, we think, well, this kind of wrong way of thinking um, really has to do with moral issues or spiritual issues. We're getting moral things wrong and we're getting spiritual things wrong. And that is certainly the case. The list of things that Paul has for us in this passage is full of moral and spiritual issues. But guys, it's also a matter of our rationality. Literally the way that we process how the world works. And guys, Scripture is full of this kind of thing. And we get a glimpse of it here in this passage. Without Christ, we love falsehood more than we do truth. Because we love a way of life that is opposite of or walking away from the God of truth. So we live in this futility of our minds. So even our rationality, our way of thinking, can be changed without Christ. 
Think of a young child who's being raised by their parents, and this child is beginning to learn the connection between their behavior and the consequences of those behavior, behaviors, positive or negative. But a parent tells the child, they give, a, they give a child some boundaries, and they say, if you do this behavior, you're going to receive this negative consequence because we don't want you doing this. And the child moves forward and does this behavior anyway. The parent, sure enough, brings this consequence upon the child. And in that child's immaturity or infancy, they're angry at mom or dad for the consequence. And part of what it means to just grow up and mature is to learn that, well, I need to connect my behavior with those consequences. The consequences aren't the fault of mom and dad. The consequences are the fault of what I have done. So this is one of the things that children learn as they grow. And take my word for it, there are a lot of adults, many of us, have not yet learned that kind of lesson. The consequences of sinful behavior are brought to us by the hand of God or even just the natural consequences of what we do. And we're still drawn away from God or even in anger to God. And we haven't gotten to that point where we've made the rational connection between what we want to do and the negative consequences of sinful behavior. We still live oftentimes in the futility of our minds. Our minds are devoid of the truth or even perverse. We've twisted the truth and we believe that something is false that is false is true. So he says they live in the futility of their minds and then he uses this language of being darkened in their understanding, alienated from the things of God. So a life apart from Christ is also a life apart from the light that Christ gives us. The insight into life that is available in Christ is not available outside of Christ. This is the kind of thing that Paul is setting up for us. Guys, ideas have consequences. And when we use that phrase, you hear that phrase, you often hear it in the context of this sort of macro level on, on giant economic or political scales. These big ideas have these monumental consequences. And on the macro level, that is true. It's also true on the micro level, on my individual level. The ideas that are strongest in my heart and mind are going to have consequences on the decisions I make the kind of life I end up leading, the lifestyle that becomes habitual to me. So guys, think of it like this. In our lives, our hearts and our minds lead in our decisions and our lifestyles follow. Our hearts and our minds are like the engine that pull a train and the rest of that train are the decisions that we end up making, the lifestyle that we end up building is a result of how we think about things, is a result of how our characters are formed or malformed. One leads and the other follows. So think about it like this with me for a couple of minutes. So if you were to answer some questions like this, how important is money? Now, how would you answer that question? That might be a long answer. You might have a lot of nuance to it, and that is fine. But how you answer a question like that is going to tell me not just, here's what I think about what the value of money is, how money should be used, 
but it's also eventually going to tell me, here's the decisions that I make about my money. So the way I think about its value is going to lead to the kinds of decisions I make with my wallet, with my money, with my bank accounts. So how important is money, right? My ideas lead to my lifestyle. What kind of value do we place on different people? And I think of this often, especially given a lot of the political controversy in our world right now. What kind of value do we place on things like celebrity? How important do we think they are, celebrity is, inside of our culture? People who are famous just for being famous. Do we value their opinions more simply because they're celebrities, but they just don't, they literally don't know any more about a subject than you or I do? But we put value on certain people for a certain set of reasons. So then we make decisions based on those kinds of values. Or we think of something maybe a little bit more significant. What kinds of ideas flood your mind when you think about the love of a mother or a father? Those ideas have been filled into you by the way that you were raised, the kind of life that you had. And then those ideas are going to lead to the decisions you make about marriage and family later on. In fact, the answers to that question might be so complicated and difficult for you that you spend a lot of time trying to overcome negative ideas about those things to try to build a healthy life. So you guys, our hearts and our minds lead and our lives and our decisions follow. So when there is darkness in the way that we think, when we are alienated from the way of God, we're moving in the wrong direction. And so these things inside of us need to be changed. They need to be renewed. They need to be formed in new kinds of ways. So without Christ leading the way in how we think about the world, the way that we think about relationships, the ways that we think about ourselves, our world, Paul says, is darkness. One of my favorite passages in the book of Proverbs is in Proverbs chapter 4, verses 16 through 19. And listen to how the text talks about the difference between those who are wicked or the fool and the person who is righteous or the person who is wise. I love this. Proverbs 4. For they cannot sleep unless they have done wrong. They are robbed of sleep unless they have made someone stumble. They literally can't go to bed tonight until they have caused trouble for someone else. Do you know someone like that? Proverbs says this is what wickedness is like. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of violence. It is food to them. Wickedness and violence and folly it is what nourishes them. They're attracted to it. It is what they need. He said, this is how sin and wickedness works its way into our lives. For they eat the bread of wickedness and drink the wine of, of violence. But the path of the righteous is like the light of dawn, which shines brighter and brighter until full day. I love that. It's like the sun rising until the middle of noon. It shines brighter and brighter until it reaches its high point. And then the last thought is this. The way of the wicked is like deep darkness. They do not know over what they stumble. They can't even tell you how things have gone wrong. That's the kind of darkness that results in a human soul when we walk without Jesus Christ. And part of this darkness of understanding is what Paul calls callousness or 
hardness of heart. You see, guys, in our sin, we are so inclined against God that we actually become resistant to his light. We become blind to his light. This is a provocative question to me. How does sin become invisible sometimes? It's obvious to everyone around us, but it's become invisible to me, or sin is invisible to other people. How does that happen? Or we may even ask a question like this. How does evil become good in the eyes of so many? You see, this is what Paul is describing. This is the effect of sin and darkness, that what is evil actually looks like good. These are the effects of sin. So guys, hardness of heart against God biases us against the word of God. So when we hear what God has to say about truth and about life, our first reaction is going to become something like, I'm not so sure. That doesn't sound right. I don't like the way that that sounds. Sin biases us against the truth of God. We become unreasonably skeptical of the truth of God. This is the work of sin within us. And it's not just that, but it actually causes attraction to sin and destructive behavior. Remember what Proverbs says, they eat the bread of wickedness and they drink the wine of violence. We actually become attracted to evil, right? Paul puts it like this when he writes to the Romans in Romans chapter 1, verses 21 through 23. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. These are powerful and profound consequences in the human heart when we do not place God in his right place inside of our hearts and our minds. That we actually begin to exchange God for things that are poor and temporary and horrible substitutes for God himself and the life that Christ gives us. But Paul says this is actually the natural path of the mind that is bent against God. This is the natural path of sin. This is exactly what those tempter demons want inside of us, to use those habits to pull us away from Jesus Christ. So you see, we were created in the image of God, Paul is going to say, which means that our lives were created to be lived in the image of God. So being made in the image of God means that we have certain faculties and abilities that are given to us by God, but it also means that there's a lifestyle that is given to us by God that should become attractive and beautiful and desirous to us when we see it and hear it described to us. We're pulled into it, even in our, even if we stumble into it, even if we're confused sometimes, we want to know more about the light that Christ offers. But Paul is telling us in that Romans passage, in this Ephesians passage, when we take God out of the equation, we don't replace him with nothing. We replace him with anything and everything else. When we take God out of the, out of the equation, we haven't just gotten rid of something that's useless anyway. We're trying to get rid of the one thing that anchors our souls. 
And so our souls naturally and inevitably go hunting for something else to take God's place. And everything else is a horrible substitute, a temporary substitute, a failing substitute for the things of God. We don't replace them with nothing, but we'll replace them with anything and everything else. We will, as human beings, grasp at any source of meaning or hope, and we will in our sin refuse the life that God offers us. Consequences of sin are profound, which makes salvation and the work of the Holy Spirit even that much more incredible. That we're not left there. Paul tells these guys, you used to live like that. Don't live like that anymore. You've been given something else. You've been taught something else in Jesus Christ. So that's the second life that is presented to us in our passage. So we read verses 17 through 19. Let's pick up in chapter 4, verse 20, and hear what else Paul has to say. But that is not the way you learned in Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and to put on the new self created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. Now we're talking a lot this morning about what you and I need to do. And maybe as a way into this second half, we can ask a different kind of question. Paul has presented these two ways of life, these two people, if you will. And maybe we ask this question, which one of these two people would you rather be friends with? Which of these two people would you rather be married to? And we think about, well, I want this other person to be the, the, the second person that Paul presents instead of the first. When the answer to who other people ought to be is fairly obvious to us, then maybe the answer to the question, who should I be, who should I become, should also naturally follow. I need to become this person who's learned this kind of life these kinds of things from Jesus Christ. He says, you've been taught something else. There's a new way that you've learned in Jesus Christ, this new way of life that is different than the one that you used to lead. And he uses this great phrase, that the truth is in Jesus Christ. Guys, you and I need to begin acting on this idea, on this thought. Jesus knows what he's talking about. When Jesus talks about these things in Scripture, do I believe that Christ is intelligent, that Christ is wise, or am I inclined to believe that I think things that are, are, are more intelligent or more wise than what Jesus has to say? We need to act on the belief that Jesus knows what he's talking about. He knows it better than anyone else. He most certainly knows it better than I do. So when Jesus talks about these fundamental things, about who he is and what life is like, do I think that Jesus knows what he's talking about? So we think about two very fundamental but deeply important issues that Jesus discusses that work their way out inside of our lives. We think of forgiveness and anger. When the disciples ask Jesus, how many times should we forgive? And Jesus gives them an answer that essentially says, you just need to keep on forgiving. And that's difficult for the disciples and us to figure out. 
Jesus talks about love and forgiveness for our enemies and those who would even mistreat us. They need our love and our forgiveness. Well, in my sin and in my brokenness, I tend to think there's a limit to that forgiveness or there are certain people who don't deserve my forgiveness. Well, who's right? Is Jesus right about this or am I right? And that some form of bitterness or vindictiveness should be allowed to grow in my soul. I need to learn to act on the belief that Jesus is actually right about forgiveness. Jesus is actually right about anger. Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount talks about anger and he says, now you've been taught that when you act on anger, when you do something to someone else in anger, that's when you're guilty. Jesus says, well, no, as a matter of fact, if there's anger sitting in your heart and it's unreconciled and it's not dealt with, you're guilty of anger. So which is it? Can I believe that I can sort of hide and pack down my anger as long as I don't show it too often or I only show it in certain ways? Or is Jesus right? It's not just the action of my anger, but it's where my soul sits. Instead of frustration and division of relationship that can sit in my heart because anger resides there, Jesus says there's a different way of life. And there is a way of life available without that. How can I act as if Jesus knows what he's talking about with these things, like forgiveness and anger? And Paul says we need to be renewed in our minds. The text here, my translation says, be renewed in the spirit of your minds. The New Living Translation puts that a little bit more clearly. It says, let the spirit or the spirit of God renew your thoughts and attitudes. The way that we think about things just needs to be made new. One of my favorite authors, Dallas Willard, in his book, Renovation of the Heart, talks about this a lot, and that the process of spiritual formation begins with the changing of our ideas. So here's part of what he says. The process of spiritual formation in Christ is one of progressively replacing those destructive images and ideas, like of forgiveness and anger, with the images and ideas that filled the mind of Jesus himself. I love that. This, this kind of thing is actually possible because of Christ and the presence of the Holy Spirit, that those destructive ideas and images can be done away with. And that new things, the things that filled the mind of Christ, can actually become the thoughts and emotions that fill my heart and mind as well. Here's how Paul talks about this, maybe in a fairly practical sense, in Philippians chapter 4, verses 8 and 9. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. And the God of peace will be with you. What an incredible promise. That there are certain things that we can do, a certain kind of life that we can lead, where the God of peace will keep us and be with us. And here's what he says. Change the way you think. Think about different kinds of things. Learn how to place your mind on the things of Christ. The kinds of things that he lists. 
And then he says, model your behavior after people who are closer to Jesus than you are, than I am. He says, the things that you saw me do, the things you heard me say, the practices you saw me live out in my life, do these things. The God of peace will be with you. This is the renewing. This is the changing of destructive ideas for the reforming, um, transforming ideas of Jesus Christ inside of our lives. And he uses this great metaphor. And it's very straightforward. He uses it a couple of places. So put off that kind of life and put on a new one. It's like this old pair of ratty clothes in our brokenness and sin. That's what we were given in our sin. He says, now you can take that off. Now there's new clothing being given to you. Why would you keep on this old ratty clothing when something brand new is being given to you? Here's how he puts it in Colossians 3, verses 12 and 14. Put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. And above all these, put on love, which binds everything together in perfect harmony. You see, this is deliberate. These are actions we take. These are things that we do to put ourselves in the presence of the Holy Spirit so that the Holy Spirit can do in our lives what I don't have the power to do. So take this off and put this on. This is what we do to begin to change what we consider to be important or valuable or right and good about life. This is the changing of habits that screw tape doesn't want us to change so that we can be pulled out of his hands and be put in the hands of our Savior Jesus Christ. This is the kind of life that Paul is talking about. So we come back to this thought. There is a way that leads to life and there is a way that leads to death. Our staff recently was talking about this biblical image of a way or of a path It's a rich metaphor that Scripture uses a lot for the way that we live our lives. And when we talk about the way that we walk, the path that we walk, it implies the beginning of life. It implies a destination. Where are we headed in this path? And it implies a journey, but it's not just that it's a journey. It also implies that there are a lot of significant decisions and life-changing moments along the way, just like there is with our biological life. From the beginning at conception to the end at our death, it's not just that we get from A to Z, but along the way there are all these decisions to be made. There are all these significant moments in life. So Paul says, don't walk this path. Walk this one where the destination is Christ, where the destination is Christ in you, where the destination is Christ forever and ever. This is the path we want to walk. So we ask this question this morning of everyone. Could this be a significant moment? Literally right now, can this be a significant moment in that path, in that journey? If there is a path that leads you out of harm and darkness and death and leads you into life and light, will you take it? Will you walk that path? 
Will you do what is necessary to begin to change the habits of our lives, the renewing of our minds, the way we think, the way our characters are built? Because a path of life is being offered to each of us. And Paul implores with you and he implores with me, don't live that old way. Walk a different way. So if you and I chose to do something different this morning, how would that change our destination? May it be Christ. May it be in the direction of his truth. May it be in the direction of the life and the light that he offers instead of the darkness that we know is always present, the darkness that always pulls us away from Christ. May that decision this morning, whether it is to come to know Christ for the very first time or the decision that I need to walk this path, and my destination needs to be Jesus Christ. My destination needs to be Jesus at work in my life now, this afternoon, tonight. This can be a significant moment. So here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray a prayer. And the, the ideas of this prayer come out of Scripture. And it's, it's a prayer of salvation. It's a prayer of asking God to become the Lord and leader of our lives. That if we confess with our mouths and believe in our heart that Jesus Christ is Lord and that God raised him from the dead, Scripture says we will be saved. For some of us this morning, this is going to be a first-time prayer. And it's going to be entrance into a brand new way of life. For the rest of us, may it be a reminder. May it even be in its own way a significant moment that I need to make sure I am turned toward Christ in all that I think and in all that I do. So let's pray this prayer. And if guys, if you would pray it with me where you are this morning. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your son Jesus Christ, for his life, death, and resurrection that I might have life. Forgive me of my sins and become Lord of my life today. In your name I pray, amen. Guys, if that was you this morning for the first time, we want to hear from you because we want to come alongside you. We want to rejoice with you. We want to encourage you. God bless you all and thank you for being with us today.